You're listening to the Europe Asia podcast, a podcast where we aim at deepening the mutual understanding and building stronger relations between Europe and Asia. Presented by the Brussels-based Europe Asia Center, we invite you to dive into the exploration of complexities and nuances that form the multi-layered relations between Europe and Asia. Through conversations with leading experts, we follow our firm belief of the need to facilitate connections, understanding, and mutual trust. A very warm welcome, Ambassador uh, Solheim. It's a true pleasure to host you in our Europe Asia podcast. Um, to kind of raise a bit of introduction background, you were holding several diplomatic and political positions um, in the past as part of the Norwegian government. Uh, you were Minister of International Development, and in 2007, actually, you also became the Minister of the Environment. So you both you held both offices until 2012. Um, I would like to actually open this conversation since the focus is going to be a little bit more on also on a you know sustainable shift and 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 the green transition. How did that unique portfolio of international development and environment actually allow you to you know approach a much broader um, scope um, of governance and you know try to bring change towards the development and environment? It was in fact incredibly helpful. Um... I believe I'm the only person in the world who has all this uh, combined portfolio, but it made it me able to mix two very important aspects of politics. One is money, which comes from the Minister of, Inter- or Minister of Foreign Affairs, in this case as Minister of International Development, and the other was policy, which was uh, under the Minister of Environment. So I could mix policy and money when it comes to international efforts uh, on the environment. Very often these are split in most nations and they struggle to get it together. The particular benefit of that was when we started the program to conserve uh, the uh, world rainforests in close cooperation with Brazil, with Indonesia, with Guyana, and a number of rainforest nations. Because the, then you needed to bring money, but you also needed to bring the political perspective as to how this could be done. All the main decisions were made by Brazil or Indonesia as to how they would do it in their countries, but we could add Norwegian uh, political and expertise and money to that in a, in a very smooth, smooth manner. No, it's very interesting yeah, because also one of the, the, one of the highlights, I mean, that is, you know, internationally praised for your host, you know, your post as a minister was also that you've reached, of course, the 1% um, um, commitment, but also the Nature Diversity Act, which is still considered as Norway's most important piece of environmental legislation in the past 100 years. Okay, to, to maybe shift to a little bit more, um, you know, actualization topic, um, you really have an, an impressive track record um, of diplomatic career and you received almost an informal title that is following you of international peacemaker. How do you see the current situation in Russia and Ukraine with the, with the current conflict um, and the role that Europe and China should play in it? First of all, because I was involved in a number of peace processes, mainly in Asia, like in Sri Lanka, Nepal, Myanmar, and Africa and Sudan. So I have not done any peacemaking at the European com- continent. Uh, I believe the most certain knowledge about wars is that they tend to be much longer, much more difficult to end, uh, and with m- much less results than those starting a war, uh, I believe. Uh, this war, obviously, Putin thought that he could, uh, he could, and uh, he could overtake uh, Ukraine in a few days. Even the Americans said he could. They said uh, the Russians will take Kiev in 48 at a maximum 72 hours. Well, now two months have passed. Uh, 
the Russians may at the end now be in control of Mariupol, the 10th biggest city in Ukraine. They control none of the nine biggest cities. So obviously this is a complete military and political uh, disaster. Unfortunately, it will be very hard to end. It may be with us for months, in the worst of cases for years to come. There is a very different perspective between the West and the rest on this. The perspective in the West is that this is by far the most important war in our time. We need to push back on Putin and we need immediately to restore the sovereignty of Ukraine. Perspective from the rest is that this is just yet another war. We had wars in Afghanistan, uh, in Iraq, uh, before that, of course, many other wars. This is yet another war. It's a European war, but it's not our war. So you see not one big developing nation following the Western sanctions, whether it's China or India, but all in, or Indonesia, or whether it's Brazil or Mexico, none of them are following Western sanctions. None of them support Putin. None of them believe this was a great thing to do. Uh, it's a most unwelcome war from most developing countries, but there, at the end, main perspective is this will hit us in higher petrol prices, it us in high fuel prices, may destabilize other part of the world, uh, but we don't want to pick sides here. So the Western sanctions are adopted by countries covering 14% of the human population. True, of course, these nations are much richer and much more important to Russia than that, so it's still important. Uh, but there's a huge difference in perspective. To really be effective in forcing peace on this conflict, we need to, we need to compare notes. We need to come to a closer cooperation between the West on one side and major developing nations like China, India, and others on the other side. What's the common program? Number one, restoration of the sovereignty of Ukraine. Uh, that's in everybody's interest. How can India agree on Kashmir, or how can China agree on Taiwan if they allow any nation to, to conquer another nation's territory and not restore the, the sovereignty? Uh, second, uh, to show uh, concern and respect for legitimate Russian security interest and restore Ukraine as a bridge between the East and the West. And thirdly, to call for an immediate ceasefire to stop, put a stop in this bloodletting. So where to be a more combined effort between the West uh, and the rest, it will be much more effective. It's an interesting, um, you make some very interesting points there. And uh, I must admit, uh, I've been following like everyone does, uh, the the news and you know the, the reports we get and we read them, but I think you made very you know excellent points there, particularly on on the question of sovereignty, you know, which is uh, a, a sacrosanct principle in international relations. And uh, and although we can diverge on, on on the meaning of it, but I think this is a basic principle. So. Uh, also, I, I like your points on uh, the West and the rest, <laughs> uh, which is indeed, you know, they have a different look at this war uh, as we Europeans, and particularly, you know, you as a Norwegian or me as a Belgian or even, you know, Matic as a Slovenian, we are very close to, to you know, to Ukraine, you know, we, 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 we can't hear the bombs, but we feel them. So, uh, so I, I myself am um, also trying to come to grips, you know, with that. And, uh, and you gave me some very good insights. Thank you for that. If, if you allow me, I've been traveling a lot in India uh, during the Ukraine war. And the Indian perspective is that this is a very far away place. It's a place, of course, with 
hardly any Indian had heard of before, uh, before, before the war. And they consider Russia their all-weather friend. <laughs> when India liberated Bangladesh, the West were, were supporting the Pakistani generals who committed genocide and mass murder in Bangladesh. When they liberated Goa, again, Russia supported them, while the West told them that you should leave this Portuguese colony for, for even for some more time. So the Indian perspective is that throughout 70 years of history, Russia has been on our side. They don't like this war. They don't support an attack on Ukraine, but they're highly unlikely to pick side and be a very, very strong force for the either side. But they can be helpful in finding a solution uh, if we can make a better alignment between the West and the rest. Because Turkey is at the moment the most likely peacemaker in, in Ukraine, and they should get every support. Uh, and they may have also the good ability to bridge. Turkey is a member of NATO. But Turkey is also close to many developing countries like China and India and many others. Very interesting insights. To to shift a little bit more to this, you know, multilateral dimension. This year we mark 50th anniversary of the United Nations Environment Program. Um, yourself as a former director and UN vice president, what do you think is the role of UNEP in promoting the environmental protection uh, in the world? And what what would you say were really the greatest of achievements of the UNEP so far? Would you be able to actually share maybe some of the most impressive um, environmental accomplishments that you have actually throughout your journey seen and, and recognized? Let me make three points. First, the UN is in a deep crisis uh, and there need to be a lot of conversation about how we can rescue the UN from this deep crisis. The UN plays hardly any role in reality in the Ukraine war, played no role except for the World Health Organization in the COVID. So it's in a deep, deep crisis. And unless we uh, try to do something, uh, it will uh, sp sp spiral down uh, in this crisis. Second, what has UN Environment Program achieved? I think the main achievements are possibly on the different conventions. If you look to the work of, of it, uh, of the agency over the last 50 years, it was critical to the Montreal Protocol, which of course uh, solved the issue of the ozone layer. The Minamata Protocol on Mercury, which has, uh, is on the way to, uh, to removing mercury from the world, and which is a very, very dangerous substance. Uh, the, the Kigali Protocol uh, on air conditioning and cooling uh, to stop uh, the negative impacts of those. Uh, so there, there are lots, lots of good achievements, um, but um, the relevance in the future of UN environment will depend on the restoration of the UN system as a, as a competent and uh, an important entity. During my time, I believe the most important um, result was that we put um, plastic pollution very high on the agenda. I think we were key to make that a global, global issue. And these have seen very important results, like Prime Minister Modi or the European Commission, both of them facing out many dif different uh, single-use plastics from, from the European and the Indian market. And we see a, a much, much higher awareness in business uh, among citizens uh, and, uh, and politics all, all over the world. I remember European Union Commissioner Timmermans told me that this was the first time his uh, young daughter had taken interest in anything he had done. When he started working on plastics, he said it was impossible to get anything done because the people said the European Union should not intervene in such an issue in Europe. 
And at the end, it was an enormous support for acting on, on plastic because people could see how it's destroying animals, um, destroying beaches. Uh, and, and now also more and more a real threat to our health because we get nanoplastic into our blood and digestive systems. Would you say indeed that uh, there are a number of issues uh, today which can only be um, tackled or addressed uh, in the multilateral framework? And one of those issues is, of course, the environment. Uh, there are other issues, but uh, of course, we, we live in this crisis also. We live a crisis of multilateralism. So do you think uh, uh, that, you know, the saving the planet is, is, is a a prime objective of multilateralism in the coming, you know, the coming months, uh, the coming year, sorry. No, absolutely, it has to, <laughs> otherwise you will undermine whatever is important to us. I mean, we, if we want to live together on this planet, we need to save it you know, together. I think there are three, three Bs which are driving the change. It's Brussels, it's Beijing, uh, and it's uh, business. Leave business aside, the two main drivers of multilateral actions are now China and the European Union. European Union is core when it comes to setting the rules in Europe, the European New Deal, the European taxonomy, all this regulating the market for Europe. But of course, it set the standards for the world. What, the Chinese are very often asking me, what, what, we, we want the best global uh, uh, regulations. Where can I find the best regulations? I tell them, not always, but normally look to Brussels. The best regulations are made in Brussels. Please look there before you look anywhere else. Um, China is key on a different front. Uh, they have brought every environment technology so low in price that it now can compete everywhere in the world. China has 80% of the uh, production of solar panels last year in the world. 99% of electric buses are running on Chinese roads. Two thirds of all uh, new hydropower was made in China. And the importance of this is not that China was the first on all these in inventions. So many of them were made in Germany or Silicon Valley or maybe even in my country, Norway. But China brought the technology so low in price that if you're sitting in, in Mali or Malawi, the poorest nation in the world, well, solar energy is cheapest energy. Why, why, why would you consider coal when solar is cheaper? You get more jobs and a better economy if you move into the uh, renewables. So Europe on the regulatory side, China on the technology side, but combined, this is dynamic. And what about business? Absolutely. I mean, basically every nation business is ahead of, uh, of governments. Look to Norway, I think I know all the main business people here. They are much ahead of the parliament or the government when it comes to understanding of the environment crisis and when it comes to seeing the ability to act because they now see this as an opportunity, not a problem. It's an opportunity for new jobs, and more profits, and there's no stronger mechanism. I mean, some NGOs tell me that, no, it's wrong if people make money on making the world green to the country, there is no mechanism stronger and which will act, work faster than making it very lucrative to make big profits in, in the green sector and to create many, many more jobs for people in the, in the green sector. A lead company, for instance, in Europe is IKEA, a Swedish furniture maker. They're far ahead of any government when it comes to circular economy. In the United States, Microsoft is far ahead of the American government. They promised to be carbon neutral by 2030. They even promised to compensate for all emissions in the 50-year history of Microsoft. So yes, look to business. I can give any number of examples also from Asia. 
in Indonesia, April, the biggest paper and pulp company in the world, have made an absolute adamant pledge to be zero deforestation and to make all the, the new paper products from already deforested areas. And they're even the, the best protector of a huge chunk of the rainforest in Sumatra. And I promise that for every square meter of rainforest they use for the plantations, they will conserve a similar square meter of rainforest. And it's much better protected than the national parks under the government, simply because uh, April has all the helicopters and fire brigades and everything needed to make sure that no one is interfering with the rainforest. You open a very interesting direction, actually, to jump back to the to the question to the question of UN as well. You mentioned UN at the deep crisis, and at the same time, also highlighting now the business is so much ahead of the of the government of the policymakers. Obviously, COP twenty six was held at the end of last year, but the final Glasgow Climate Pact really fell short. And I mean, broader society, um, particularly NGOs, have been very much outspoken that there simply has not been a you know agreement to meet the um, predefined UN standards. Um, how do you think China and Europe should actually collaborate on that framework of climate sustainability? I mean, if we only look specifically at the example of COP26. Yes, sure. I mean, there were a few good results in Glasgow on methane, on deforestation, the US-China agreement on working together on climate, so there were, there were some, some breakthroughs, but largely I believe the focus is the wrong one. It's not diplomacy uh, which is driving uh, the climate action at the moment, it's the political economy. Uh, when President Xi uh, last year promised that China would stop all overseas coal investments, it's much more important than any outcome from Glasgow. Uh, and the promise uh, I just mentioned from Microsoft, but from so many other big companies, of course, much more important than promises made by many nations, because Microsoft is much bigger than most nations in the world. It's not bigger than China and the US, but it's much bigger than uh, any small European or African uh, nation. Uh, so it matters what these big business companies do. So let's focus on the political economy, the actions by the lead politicians, she, the European Commission, Biden, Prime Minister Modi of India, and let's focus on what the big business is doing, and of course, strongly encourage them to do more. Europe and China should cooperate a lot more, invest, European companies invest in China, Chinese companies invest in Europe, because that's the best way to exchange technology. Technology cannot be exchanged by, between governments, it can only happen in the business sector. And they should also uh, exchange views on policies, for instance, on how to make the uh, transition fair, because if it's not fair, it will be very hard to pull out both in Europe as well as in China. Maybe it's in China because they don't have some have voters, uh, but still also the Chinese government is responsible to responsive to currents within the population. So whether in China or Europe, or for that matter in the US, if it's not fair, uh, we will struggle. Of course, you know the, the the current crisis in Ukraine is distracting the political attention from um, many leaders in Europe and in the world. You know, from from the real issues such as as environment, but on the other hand, uh, some people are saying you know, this crisis or this uh, uh, conflict is 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 mobilizing also the the spirits of people and say, listen, you know, um, we have to look at at you know the survival of the planet, and this is an issue which should become you know the the the, the priority political attention, um, you know, the priority of, of, of our political leaders. So 
I, I see a little bit a, a, a double-edged sword, sword here. On the, hand, on the one hand, it's crisis. On the other hand, you know, crisis is always an opportunity. And I think the opportunity I see is, is indeed, you know, to, to, to agree on, 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 um, on the whole question of climate change and how we can make progress on it. I think you're absolutely right. And the Ukraine crisis is, of course, number one, extremely bad for Ukraine as well as for Russia. Uh, secondly, also bad in the sense that it drags attention from the real issues of our day, say how to get out of COVID-19, how to restore economic development and how to uh, solve the climate, climate crisis. But for climate, in all likelihood, it's a good thing, in, if you can put it in that way, because it will supercharge uh, the development to renewables. In Europe, we want to be independent on Russian fossil fuels. How can we do that? Uh, only by relying upon European uh, natural resources. And the sun, the wind, hydropower, these are European resources. They are shining, whatever happens. The sun is shining, whatever is happening in Russia. The wind is blowing, whatever is happening in Russia. Uh, and as the European Union then said, and Germany also said, this is a freedom, freedom uh, technology. It makes us independent. But if you move on to, say, India, which is not necessarily that, in, that focused on being independent of Russia, <laughs> they are focused on being independent on the volatile uh, global markets. And India is a huge importer. They have hardly any oil and gas domestically, so they import this. And of course, again, <clears throat> the sun and the wind and the hydropower from the Himalayas, all these are uh, national resources. Uh, so it creates in energy independence if you move to the renewables. You mentioned before, I mean, you highlighted business Brussels and Beijing as three really drivers of the you know, multilateral dimension towards the green transition. Um, China is obviously one of the you know, front runners, so to speak, but probably you have very good insight also in terms of where China could actually improve and where China could even you know, um, go even more ahead. Um, how should actually the Sino-European uh, cooperation on the environment um, be carried out in next steps? I think, as I said, mutual investment is very important because technology is, will be a main driver. This applies for sure to all the renewables, but also to the enormous opportunities in artificial the intelligence and the digital revolution. Here there will be obstacles because this, some of these will be seen as critical uh, infrastructure also for security, but we need to overcome, uh, overcome these. Artificial intelligence has an enormous opportunity for good. I mean, <laughs> just to look to the numbers, we can now store one trillion times more data than we could 40 years ago. The price is 15 million times lower than it was 40 years ago. And artificial intelligence can make uh, every industrial process much more efficient, much less energy uh, dependent. Uh, we can make health, uh, education, transport, everything much more effective and also much more um, easy for people to use without negative environment effect. Look to, for instance, opportunity. Why would all of us own our own car, uh, which is basically part 23 out of 24 hours a day? If we can get an app and whenever you get into the street with your app, you hire the nearest car and you go where you want to go and you leave the car there and next time you hire another car. Uh, it's much more efficient. You will use much less cars, much less pollution, and the opportunities are enormous. By the way, when we move into autonomous driving, 
the autonomous car will never drink, will never fall asleep, uh, and it will not speed above the, above the speed limits. So for sure, there will be much, much fewer road accidents, which is a road accident is now the biggest killer for people between 15 and 30 in the world. So to reduce road accidents will also be an enormous opportunity. But to look into all the areas for technological cooperation between China and Europe will, will be absolutely essential. And also to look to the best policies which are applied in China, which we can learn from in Europe and for sure vice versa. To go build forward a little bit on the you know political economy um, dimension, as you uh, as you reflected before, um, you you are a very open supporter of the Belt and Road Initiative and specifically the Green Belt and Road Initiative. Um, would you be able to reflect on this paradigm? And obviously, it is one of the you know flagship initiatives um, that has been initiated under President Xi Jinping, and of course, it has a strong counterbalance. Let's say now with the new, with the new European Green Deal. What is your stance and you know, how would you reflect on this position towards particularly Green Belt and Road Initiative, um, you know, still, let's say, also in your post uh, as a UN Undersecretary? Look, uh, Belt and Road is uh, by far the biggest investment scheme in our era. 130 nations are party to Belt and Road. <clears throat> Basically, every developing nation in Asia, Africa, and Latin America is party to it. There are two major opponents, the United States don't like it, and China, and sorry, India is reluctant, uh, among other reasons because of the Pakistani-Chinese um, <coughs> corridor issue. And there, are, there is some reluctance in Europe, but nearly every nation is part of it. Uh, it was for long uh, far too brown, there were many investments in coal. Now President Xi has made it absolutely clear there will be no new investments in coal and Reuters just had a report saying that every new coal plant is stopped. Uh, there is a discussion now on, on coal plants which have been started, I mean, or where constructions has been started, how to face down those who have come very, uh, where there have been very little done and how to retrofit those who are already either in operation or close to operation in such a way that at least you reduce the, the pollution as much as possible, potentially through uh, carbon capture and, and storage. Um, so overall, this is an enormous opportunity to do good. And of course, when China will not deliver coal anymore to anyone, uh, Indonesia or Pakistan or Vietnam or Kenya or South Africa, they will ask for solar and wind and green hydrogen and all the green technologies which China can all deliver. The Western response uh, has been very often just to criticize China. Of course, that, with that you get nowhere. You cannot, you cannot tell Kenya or Tanzania that you should not work with the Chinese if they offer to build a railroad or a sports stadium or, or, or a solar plant. You need to compete by doing better. Uh, Joe Biden launched last year the Build, better, build Back Better initiative in the, in the UK during the G7 meeting. So far, as far as I've seen, there is no budget no strategy, no secretariat, no nothing. It was just a photo opportunity. And we in the West should not, should not fuel ourselves. Africa knows that. Uh, they are speaking in any occasion ironically about that. Unless we deliver something in real terms for Africa, which can compete with the Chinese offer, uh, we, we will fail. What all African nations want, of course, is to be able to tap into the technology, the friendship, and the economies, both of the West and China, not one nation want to choose. <laughs> All want to be very close, both to China and the West. 
So the West should look into how we can step up with similar or better offers uh, to Africa and indeed the rest of the developing world. Uh, then, then it will be good. And it may also be that it will be useful for the West to reconsider a little bit because look, uh, China has constructed 40,000 kilometers of high-speed environment-friendly rail at home the last 15 years. The United States has produced exactly zero. Is it likely that the United States can make railroads in, in Africa or Asia better than uh, China when they don't have a domestic market? Why don't, say, the U.S. focus a little bit more on their strong points? Basically, every African mother or father would love to see their children go to Harvard or Stanford or Yale. I mean, Tsinghua is also one of the 10 top universities of the world, but still the United States and the United Kingdom dominate a number of the best universities. Invite a lot more African and developing nation students there. That would be a strong point uh, for the West. But competing in solar panels when China is producing 80% of them, competing in high-speed rail with China has done 40,000 kilometers at home, at least it would be a challenge. In, you were talking about uh, railways, building railways in, in Africa, the Chinese are building railways in Africa. Uh, it's quite funny because uh, in the 19th century, end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, you know, as I'm a Belgian, you know, Belgian companies actually built railways in China. Uh, ju just to see how the world has, has changed. And I think, indeed, uh, everything starts with uh, basic good infrastructure. And if this infrastructure is sustainable, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, not, uh, it, it's not destroying you know, the, the environment, but on the contrary, it's, it's, it's a sustainable effort. So I see that as a, as a plus. And I, I must say, uh, I, you know, the, the Chinese you know, presence in Africa is, is rather a, a positive development and it's as you said it, it is uh, also making us aware you know the west that we we have to compete and how can you compete indeed uh, it is to do better than, than than the chinese so this is something which is very crucial and therefore i think a dialogue is important on those matters you know we need to dialogue with china as a european union or as europe as such we need to dialogue on on those kind of uh, and not trying to to you know to um, uh, to to start an ideological war on that. So uh, my my point is is dialogue. We we cannot agree more. I mean, of course, in the global coalition for green belt and road, we invite every European government or business to be part of that. Because true, this is a Chinese-dominated initiative but it's still open to everyone else. And we'd be very, very happy to work with any European nation, government or company uh, in making the Belt and Road greener and better. In addition, Europe, of course, should make other offers to developing nations so that uh, the developing nations get more to choose from. Uh, when John Bolton was the national security advisor for Donald Trump, he made the case to Africa that you need to choose. Either you are with us, meaning the US, or you are with China. Well, not one African head of state raised his or her hand. Not one. Because no one wants to be just with the US, but no one wants to be just with China either. <laughs> All want to be friendly both to China and to Europe, and indeed also to India and other parts of the world, and they want to get the best from all of us. And that was the, the poorest the, the developing countries deserve. 
best investment, best practice, development assistance, but both from China as well as from the West. An interesting highlight of the EU-Africa summit that was happening earlier this um, spring in, in Brussels actually was also in fact that Europe really or European countries have to shift from you know the aid programs <coughs> towards investment programs towards Africa. That was really one of the striking highlights how also the narrative has to has to change. Um, if we leave the ideology aside that you know is too often prevailing in the heated discussions and you know decontextualizations. Um, you have a really deep understanding of China. So what is really your perspective on the Chinese culture? Yeah? Um, when we had our bit more relaxed conversation, you actually reflected on the main challenge between the dialogue of, of Europe and China being the misunderstanding and to a certain extent the arrogance of the West towards China. Would you able to reflect a bit more on that? Obviously, if you take a historical perspective, the Chinese civilization has been the most brilliant in the world meaning that at basically every point it has been the highest technology in the biggest state, the most splendid intellectual debates, et cetera, et cetera. The only times when Europe can claim to have been at the same level as um, China was during the Roman Empire, which had basically similar size and basically similar population to the Han Dynasty of China. At the same time, we, we can basically say they were developed more or less at the same level. And then of course, from 1800 onwards, Europe during colonial time starting dominating dominating the world. Any other point, China was far ahead of us. Look to the 1400s. At that time, there was not one city in Europe except Istanbul or Constantinople, it was called at the time, with a population of 100,000. The biggest cities in Europe were like 50,000. That was an enormously big city in Europe. At the time, there were five cities in the Ming dynasty with a population of more than one million. Five. So the enormous difference when Marco Polo went to, to China, he came back to Europe and it was called Il Milione. And that was because he was said that he was exaggerating his experiences on China so much, it must have been a million times. Uh, true, Marco Polo may have exaggerated a bit, but still the difference between China and Europe those days was so enormous. So let us respect that China has a very brilliant history, which we can learn a lot from. But it has also been an extremely violent history in China. Some of the most uh, horrible wars next to, the, next to the Second World War, all the most uh, horrible wars in human history has been in China. The Taiping Rebellion in the 19th, uh, 19th century killed probably more people than, this, than the First World War. And hardly any European has ever heard about the Taiping, Taiping Rebellion. But from this very violent history comes a very strong Chinese desire for harmony. I think that's maybe a crucial way of understanding China versus particularly in the US, but also Europe. If you ask Chinese what's most important, is it harmony or freedom? I think 95% of all Chinese would say it's harmony. If you ask the same question in Kansas or Nebraska, for sure 95% of all Americans said freedom is much more important than harmony. That's a huge difference. And it's nothing wrong with either answer. Freedom is important and so is harmony. The ideal society gives freedom to the individual but creates harmony among people. Uh, but it's not easy. Uh, and let's respect that the Chinese come from a different place, have a different history, and their history is by and large much more brilliant than ours. But together we can, we can achieve a lot. I fully agree with uh, what you said at the end, that together we can achieve a lot indeed as, as, as European culture 
mixed with uh, Chinese culture. Uh, this is, uh, of course, uh, an, an, an the you know the ideal model, uh, and we have to to do everything we can, you know, as uh, non-politicians at the moment. You know, we're all in a, in, a, in a different role as we used to be, so we have a, a role to play there to promote this kind of again uh, dialogue with China uh, and and Europe, uh, because uh, in the end of the day, if you bring the two cultures and civilizations together, this is a, a, a real a real strength and force uh, for the good in the world. And I think both Europe and uh, China can do a lot more um, uh, to do better. Uh, Europe should, and, and even more so, of course, the United States should stop finger pointing to everything we don't like in China. It's a lot to criticize in China, but so is there is a lot to criticize in Europe and and the US and we have this missionary instinct and then we see something we don't like we run around finger pointing and criticizing and we come nowhere if we want to resolve the main say human rights issues in China it can only be done by China only China can find a better way to uh, to find an anti-terror policy in, in Xinjiang which is not so oppressive to the people there our finger pointing helps nothing on the Chinese side they should also uh, feel less vulnerable. <laughs> the Chinese tend to hit back very, very hard whenever there is a slight offense to China. If, uh, say, the Norwegian Nobel Committee, when we gave the Nobel Prize to Chinese dissident, uh, China put Norway in the freezer for six years. But you see in the relationship to Australia, to Lithuania, to a number of middle-sized or smaller countries, even very, very slight uh, attacks on China, get a very massive response from China. Here, China can learn from the US. Uh, US is criticized every hour of every day somewhere in the world, but Americans are not so much concerned with that, except they criticize criticism with low shoulders. So if we in the West can stop being so missionary, stop being so much finger pointing, and the Chinese can stop reacting so negatively to even the slightest criticism, uh, we will be able to have a better dialogue. Building on that, actually, I mean, um, last year there was the quite quite internationally um, raised um, meeting point, Summit for Democracy, presented by the US. Um, and it really presented one of the major international meeting points with over 100 countries represented on some of the top levels. Among the guests, unfortunately, there was no presence of either China and Russia, who supposedly have not been invited or given the extension of the invitation. Was that actually a strategic mistake to create this new opportunity for, for dialogue, actually, on, on such a scale with so many multilateral partners at the same table? I think this summit basically achieved nothing, and I think the Americans also very, well, very, very well aware uh, that it achieved nothing created a number of difficulties. <clears throat> Why did they invite uh, Pakistan and not Bangladesh? Just to make one example, is Pakistan more democratic than Bangladesh? I mean, very few people would, would argue that that's the case. And all over the world, you have this kind of, this kind of, they invited someone and, and not others. And there is no way you can divide the world into two camps, one democratic and one autocratic camp. Africa, there are 56 nations in, uh, in, in Africa. Hardly any of them are democratic in the sense that there is a political debate about competence, about uh, political issues, education, health, infrastructure. Nearly every 
a democracy is uh, ethnically based. <laughs> People uh, vote according to tribe or district or religion. Uh, so it's a very, very different, uh, different uh, situation. So we should, we should avoid this idea of dividing the world into two camps. And maybe more importantly, the main threat to at least Western democracy is not coming from autocratic states. There is no threat to uh, European Union or uh, from, from autocratic states. I mean, China's not trying to interfere in our way of doing democracy. And even the non-autocratic, the non-democratic states in Europe, say Hungary, are relatively small and are not really posing a threat to European democracy. The main threat to democracy is coming from the heart, from the United States. Uh, United States has been the harbinger of uh, democracy for the last 200 years, the kind of shining um, city on the hill, the most democratic place, the nation people looked up to for inspiration when it comes to democracy. Now, uh, two years before the 2024 elections, everyone in the world have to take into account the chance that Donald Trump would be the next president in the United States. It's now 6% ahead of Joe Biden on the predictions for the 2024 elections. He may not still not be elected, but at least it's a 50-50 chance uh, that a non-democratic party, the Republican Party, with a non-democratic president, Donald Trump, is elected in the core, uh, core democratic nation. That's the main threat to democracy, because even European democracy will struggle quite a lot if we see the United States moving in a non-democratic way. Uh, China will not impact on us. They will have their autocratic system. It's different from ours, but we can live happily side by side. That if um, democracy rottens at the core in its heart, we will struggle. Looking also a little bit, I mean, to, to the most recent developments, you know, in, in the last two years, looking towards the, the, um, the global pandemic with coronavirus, um, Wind, solar and hydropower actually have made up the bulk of China's Belt and Road Initiative energy investment. Um, and as the coronavirus accelerated, a shift away from fossil fuels has really geared up. Um, how do you think that the whole pandemic period actually influenced the energy transition efforts both in, in Europe and China? And then to add on on that, the context that we spoke also at the beginning, um, was the COVID just the starting point of this acceleration of transition and Ukraine um, crisis is just a follow-up. Yes, as bad as the COVID crisis was and as bad as the Ukraine crisis is, uh, they have both uh, supercharged the change in the renewable direction. Uh, Lenin, the Russian revolutionary, once said that there are decades when nothing is happening. And then all of a sudden there are years where decades uh, is happening. And I think the COVID time was such a year because it's really supercharged the thinking. I mean, at the, when we started the COVID crisis, many people said this will divert all attention from the environment and be very bad. To the contrary, it supercharged, particularly business, into a new thinking uh, because they understood that they need to think differently. Uh, power in business was drastically moved towards the tech companies and from the, from the say, uh, the oil and gas companies. I mean, look to the, to, the, to the United States where Exxon was even thrown out of the New York Stock Exchange because there was not big enough to be there. There are a, there are, there are a pygmy compared to the Google or, or Amazon or, or, or Microsoft to the big, what's in the big companies in our era. So yes, indeed, companies started to look into what's called ESG, 
environment, sustainability and governance in a completely new way. In the past, that was normally done by some people working in the sustainability department of the company. Now it's at the top, top level of every company because they see going green as the main business for the future. So strange as it was, uh, COVID supercharged uh, the, the change into a greener economy. Both counterparts, obviously, as mentioned before, presented a very ambitious plan of tackling the climate change. China with the Green Belt and Road Initiative, European Union with the the new European Green Deal. Um, in your point of view, I mean, you have a really deep understanding of both programs. Um, how much of alignment um, or is there already is between the two programs, uh, between China and uh, EU? Um, and how much more could actually be built or aligned? Um, also looking, you know, not only to the scope of on the European side of EU, but also the, um, the EEA countries, including your own native Norway. Absolutely. I think a lot more can be done. I think at the end, the, the most promising and important is, of course, business cooperation, because that's where the technology exchange will happen. The government should uh, encourage that uh, and facilitate that. Uh, with more Chinese investment in Europe, and you already see, for instance, a number of the Chinese uh, electric uh, uh, car companies coming into Europe, and they can stimulate Volkswagen and Mercedes to, to change faster. Uh, and on the other hand, you see, of course, European investment in China. We should have a lot more on that and more business cooperation, also in the tech sector, because that's where you can see the enormous opportunities for a more effective production. But one area which I touched upon, but which is important, is to look into how to make the transition fair. Because if you are a coal worker in southern Poland, uh, you may not be very happy to know that Denmark is going completely green and, uh, and that entire energy mix in Denmark now is um, wind power. And that uh, Ørsted, the former oil company in Denmark, has made the most fantastic transaction of any company, transition of any company in the world from oil into being wind power company. And of course, creating any number of jobs for Danes in the wind sector. But that's not a happy message if you're a coal worker in Poland. Exactly the same in the US. You, if you work in the coal industry in Kentucky, you may not be very happy to see solar jobs coming in California, Arizona or if you're in the Shanxi province of China uh, in the coal industry, well, you know that it may be better for China, but the jobs will come in Guangdong or, or Jiangsu and other provinces. So to make this transition fair, it's absolutely critical. Otherwise, you will mobilize an enormous negative uh, opposition from business, from voters, and in many other ways. And here, the European Union has taken uh, to the credit a number of good initiatives, setting up funds, retraining programs, uh, uh, aerial de development in those areas which will not initially benefit from the from the shift, and we can we can learn from each other how, how to do that in in the best best possible way. I mean, Europe learning from China, China learning from Europe, because the issue at the core is the same. Speaking really about this fair transition, would you say there is this issue of fair transition? Let's say the sore point of this, you know overall global green transition, both for Europe, for China, and even maybe even looking at the, you know, countries in Southeast Asia? Or is there also other points that you think are, you know, the critical points in, in the transition? 
It's a critical point. I mean, look to the just finalized uh, election in, in France. True, Macron won a very impressive victory. Uh, but Marine Le Pen got 42% of the votes, which is the biggest victory for such a party, uh, biggest number for such a party ever. And one of the points where she tried to capitalize was to look into all uh, the uh, dissatisfaction among less uh, uh, affluent voters uh, for this transition, that uh, prices of energy may go up, prices of car uh, may go up. Still, very few people in France has an electric car, which will transform that because in the, in the long run, an electric car is much cheaper than the, than the gasoline car, even if the upfront cost may be higher. But you, you, if you allow a lot uh, of arguments for politicians who want to obstruct the green shift, uh, it will be much more difficult for that to happen. And of course, business interest, vested interest in regional governments, uh, voters, uh, you can create a perfect storm, which makes change difficult. France, of course, to some extent, uh, um, experienced that with the so-called Green West, uh, Yellow West movement, uh, which was not only, but to some extent, based on dissatisfaction with environments, the sound policies. Thank you. Um, maybe shifting actually to the, the part of the conversation where we like to ask the questions that our um, future leaders pose to our guests. And we have two questions from European future leaders and two questions from the future leaders from China, actually. And the first question from um, European part is actually touching back on, on the conversation we have raised already about Africa. Uh, um, really specifically asking how do you how do you perceive the Chinese investment in Africa? Will it treat Europeans' position and interest in Africa? Uh, Chinese investment uh, in Africa is of course not without uh, difficulties, but overall it's an enormous force for good. Uh, China is investing in basically every country in Africa. China is now the main China is a bigger trade partner with every country in Africa uh, that ex than the US except for Mauritania and it's the biggest trade partner with most countries in Africa. So China is a major force uh, for good. Also China is dominating the telecommunication, making cheap uh, phones are available for people. So overall uh, very, very positive. Uh, what, um, but of course it will strengthen China's influence and position in the world for sure. But this is normal. And China was a very, very poor country 40 years ago. And it was the number 177 on the list of uh, nations in the world when it comes to GDP per capita. Now it's, uh, de depending on the, the way you measure, the second or biggest economy in the world, so it will be the biggest economy in the world in every measurement. So, of course, it's an enormous potential force for good uh, in Africa. Europe uh, should uh, make a mixture of cooperation and competition. We should, we should cooperate with China in many, many areas where we can work together in Africa. And we should compete when there's a normal business competition. If we can make solar power better in Africa or set up wind power better, please, let's do it. Uh, and that's a, that's a sound, sound competition. And of course, we can also maybe compete in some of the areas where we have an advantage, like as I mentioned earlier, education, um, where European uh, educational institutions also have a very, very uh, attract, uh, big attraction uh, for, for Africa. And how do you see the current state of, you know, very much discussed China-EU comprehensive trade agreement uh, and agreement on the investment? Um, 
is this opening the possibilities for future economic cooperation to a more prosperous stage or Yes, I, I think we should go ahead. Of course, it's a stop now because of political disagreements related first to Xinjiang and then related to this uh, sanctions list. These, in my view, are small issues which should be overcome uh, for the common good, which is uh, the ability of China and Europe to work together for <clears throat> climate, uh, to reduce climate emission, to protect Mother Earth and nature much better, and to help the developing world like Africa or for developing nations in Asia and Latin America to, to develop much, much faster. So the, the, what we can achieve together is so much bigger than our disagreement. Uh, and in international affairs, we should a lot more think of uh, the ability to achieve something together rather than finding faults with each other. May, may, no, I just would on, on this investment uh, uh, agreement. Uh, indeed, I see that as the low-hanging fruit. I mean, everything has been done, everything has been negotiated. It's now a question of, of political will and, and, and stop, you know, politicizing this debate. Uh, this is something, you know, we, we could do in a very, uh, in, in the coming months. So let's, let's push for that and let's uh, work towards um, you know, an early adoption of that, um, of an early uh, implementation of this agreement. And of course, China, uh, with a number of uh, Asian nations, have made uh, different uh, frameworks for, for trade co cooperation in Asia. And let's also remember that that's where the future lies. Uh, Asia is 60% uh, of the global population, maybe even, even a bit more than 60%. Um, ASEAN is a huge economy, six, seven hundred million people in the 1.3, but soon to be the biggest nation in the world. Um, so there are, there are the, the future markets also for Europe to a large extent is in Asia. So let's, uh, this is in our own benefit, but also in the benefit of the planet if we can, if we can work together for trade, uh, but for sure also for environment and, um, and development. Ambassador Solheim, I would like to say a very big thank you for your time, for a very interesting insights um, and a lot of perspectives, perspectives and food for thought for next conversations and um, dialogues, actually. So thank you so much for joining. And thank you also, Ambassador, to, to share with you, um, you know, this very interesting uh, uh, questions, you know, and which, which are probably you know, to go to the essence of, of international cooperation today. I mean, we are uh, certainly in Europe, we are in a crisis, uh, but I see, uh, any, you know, every crisis has also an opportunity. We should use that opportunity and certainly uh, not waste it. So thank you so much for, uh, for your insights. Thank you, I'm very happy to be with you.